Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. Brainwash Radio, Merry Christmas. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, the Christmas story, and it's uh, evidence of Jesus' birth revealed. Full episode. Check it out. Hope you enjoy it. Happy holidays. Do you trade options? Did you know that nearly half of the market is traded behind closed doors? It's awesome. In a backwater of the ancient world, a newborn child heralds new hope for mankind. It is a birth riddled with paradox. A virgin has become a mother. God has become human. A child is king. The biblical account of Jesus' birth has enraptured millions. But the passage of 2,000 years has obscured the historical events that inspired it. What really happened? The answers, though elusive, may still be within our grasp. In clues contained in the Bible, in ancient historical documents, and in recent new discoveries by scholars and scientists, Join us as we try to reconstruct the true story of a birth as mysterious as it was momentous. For many, the search for the truth begins here. This sanctuary in Bethlehem was built in 326 AD at the behest of the mother of the most powerful man on earth. A decade earlier, Constantine the Great had altered history by declaring Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. His mother, Helena, became convinced by local residents that his newfound faith began on this spot. Visitors to the Church of the Nativity can descend to a grotto below, where Jesus is said to have been born. Many share Helena's belief. Others who do not still acknowledge the site's symbolic, if not historic, value. Here, both can find satisfaction. Here, they can touch Christmas. Matthew and Luke. 
but many scholars believe that they are works concerned not so much with facts than faith. To extract history from their pages is problematic. The Hebrews knew that some truths are more profoundly communicated by telling a story than simply narrating historical events. Well, that presents us with an interesting difficulty. Sometimes we have to take a biblical passage and decide how much of this is the narration of events and how much of this is story and how do we tell the difference? Our idea of history is different from writers who were writing then. We're interested in the facts and only the facts. Uh, people writing at that point were interested not just in what happened, but in the interpretation of what happened. It didn't disturb them at all to add things, to put forward their own theology. And it didn't disturb their readers either. They weren't historians and they weren't biographers. They were people whose communities had been impacted by the life of one they called Jesus of Nazareth. And it was imperative that they tell the story. But did Matthew and Luke base their accounts of Jesus's birth on actual events? Or did they merely invent the story after Jesus rose to prominence? The answers are all the more elusive because the narrative known to millions is in fact a fusion of two strikingly different tales. It begins when God chooses an obscure young virgin named Mary to carry his son. He tells her of his plan in an extraordinary encounter known as the Annunciation. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Luke 1 30. When Mary reveals her pregnancy to Joseph, her fiancé, he disbelieves her story. But when another angel visits him to verify it, his devotion to Mary is restored. Months pass. Then a drama begins that is described by Luke, but never mentioned by Matthew. The emperor demands that all the Roman world, including the Hebrew people, return to their ancestral homes in order to be taxed. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Luke 2, 1. Joseph, originally from Bethlehem, must escort the pregnant Mary on an arduous journey to his home city, 90 miles away. One of the realities that we must always keep in mind in thinking about the Christmas story is that Palestine was Roman-occupied Palestine. This was not a time or a place when the Hebrew people were in control of their own fate. Rome was very much 
in control of the fate of these people. So there's a there's a human drama. There's the drama of a father and a mother protecting their child and of trying to do the right thing. There's a larger drama, and that is this is a Hebrew family trying to do the right thing under the brutal occupation of Palestine by a foreign entity, the Roman Empire. When Mary and Joseph arrive, they discover that Bethlehem is crowded to capacity. With no lodging available, the couple's dilemma worsens. Mary goes into labor. And she gave birth to her newborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 2, 7. The setting where Jesus was born is not specified, but the presence of a manger, a feeding trough for livestock, has led many to believe it was a stable. Both Matthew and Luke describe how God makes known the miraculous birth to a receptive few, but they differ about who was informed and how. According to Matthew, God conveys the news through a wondrous morning star. It serves as a beacon for foreign dignitaries who travel hundreds of miles to pay homage to the infant Jesus. The star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew 2, 9. In Luke's version, the message of the birth is carried by an angel. It is delivered not to powerful foreigners, but to the local area's most humble inhabitants. There were shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 8. The birth of Jesus represents one of those shining moments in human history when there seems to be a kind of sunrise in human darkness. The birth of Jesus and the life and teachings of Jesus provide us with a level of hope, a message of trust, and of just the human possibilities. And I think even non-Christians can come to appreciate that in Jesus as well. Whether you are a person of faith or not, you have echoes of the story in art, in literature, and you can't avoid it. And so one needs to be aware of what this story is and what the significance of this story is in order to survive in Western culture. There's something about the birth of any child that is a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful moment for a family. But in the case of the story of the birth of Jesus, the point of it is here is a birth that may have some meaning for a bigger family, for the family of Israel for the family of humankind. One man's birth would turn the world upside down. A new faith would challenge the old order. Jesus 
claiming to be the son of God, would be seen as a threat to Caesar, who claimed to be a god himself. Two charismatic leaders, each asserting their divinity, would offer a revolutionary choice for the future. For millions of people, Caesar as divine made sense. He owned the legions, he controlled the Mediterranean world, he brought peace to it, and he lived in a huge palace over there in the Palatine Hill in Rome. Now, over here is another story, a counter story, an anti-story, which says, no, God is not the God of power and violence incarnate in Caesar. God is the Jewish God of justice and righteousness incarnate in a little child who was born in a tiny country an occupied colony of the Roman Empire, born just about as low as you can imagine. So you hear of a clash of two gods, and the question of the story, and it is the, Christ, the Christmas question, where is your God? Is your God in power or in justice? Take your choice. For two people, the choice is never in doubt. The virgin and the carpenter who bring Jesus into the world are the first to love him and all he represents. Surprisingly, however, the Gospels tell us little about them. All efforts to trace the historical roots of Christmas lead back to two pivotal figures. The human drama in the story belongs to Mary and Joseph. They are the parents of God's only son, responsible for bringing up the savior of the world. Yet the gospels provide little information about them. Today, we think of them simply as a virgin mother and a humble carpenter. Mary's identity has been obscured by centuries of idealization, encouraged by the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. The phrase the Immaculate Conception is often misunderstood as a reference to the Immaculate Conception of Jesus, when in fact it is a reference to Mary. There was a sanctifying grace that preserved her from the stain of original sin. It was important that Mary's pureness be preserved. And so I think that in order for this young woman to be the mother of one who was later in Christianity considered God, that it was important that we not have original sin stain this family. For a less romanticized, more accurate portrait of Mary, scholars take a deeper look into the Gospels. According to Luke, she is neither meek nor mild, but driven by a sense of purpose. She reveals herself in a powerful proclamation now known as the Magnificat. My soul exalts the Lord. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Luke 1, 46. What is the image that Luke portrays for us of the young Mary? It is not an image of this kind of glowing white virginal woman floating in the air. It's the image of a revolutionary young woman in Roman occupied Palestine, who 
who sees the implications of the coming of her child to be expressed in those powerful words that the rich will be sent away, the poor will be fed, and the powerful will be pulled down from their thrones. This is a very politically savvy young woman. If Luke saw Mary as a revolutionary, he also saw her as a virgin. For historians, the virgin birth defies analysis. They are not equipped or inclined to discuss miracles. In their quest to understand the Christmas story, they must confine themselves to a conventional approach. In recent years, they have discovered other possible explanations for Mary's dual role as virgin and mother. Advances in reproductive biology have focused attention on a phenomenon called parthenogenesis. It is a rare process in some plants and animals in which an egg can develop into a new organism without being fertilized. No instance of the process occurring in a human female has ever been recorded. Still, it leaves open the possibility that a virgin birth could have a basis in science. Some scholars, however, believe the gospel authors did not base the virgin birth on a real event, but were inspired by an Old Testament prophecy. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. According to some scholars, the gospel authors likely claimed Jesus was born of a virgin to remain consistent with Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah. Isaiah himself, so far as we know, had no intentions of looking that far ahead, but uh, the standard procedure throughout the ancient world was to make connections between the present and the past, and Christians are doing that with Jesus by connecting him with the past scripture, in this case, uh, prophecy of Isaiah. Ironically, however, some claim it is possible that Isaiah never intended to predict that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. His words, written originally in Hebrew, may have taken on an erroneous new meaning when translated into the Greek version available to Matthew and Luke. In the original Hebrew of Isaiah, the word that is used for, well, virgin is actually alma. The Hebrew word that means a young woman, a young woman of the age when women can conceive and bear children. And there is no more baggage than that that is connected to that particular term. When this gets translated into the Greek, which is what the early Christians would have been using, the text that they would have had, it was Parthenos, which is um, more heavenly, heavily nuanced as virgin. The fact of the matter is, the doctrine of the virgin birth works better with the Greek than it does with the original Hebrew. I don't think we have the speculation that the whole idea of Mary's virginity comes from this mistranslation is one that um, argues very well. For one thing, it's not a mistranslation. It is one of several words that is perfectly acceptable as a translation, but it does have a more heavy nuance of virginity. Scholars who scrutinize the virgin birth focus not only on Isaiah's prediction in the Old Testament, but also the Gospels themselves. 
in an apparent contradiction, the same biblical authors who celebrate Mary's virginity also write that Jesus had several siblings. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? Matthew 13, 54. The orthodox tradition on this is that they were children of Joseph by an earlier marriage. The Roman Catholic tradition is that these were simply cousins of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, however, provide no information supporting this interpretation. Yet one would theologically upon the perpetual virginity of Mary, then there are some great problems when it comes to the uh, brothers and the sisters of Jesus. And then uh, some creative, theological, and historical um, work has to be done. That The spin doctors have to go to work. I think that the simplest way to read those accounts is to understand that Jesus had real brothers and real sisters. It was that kind of an ordinary family. If Jesus had biological siblings, it would negate only the notion that Mary was a virgin her entire life, not necessarily her virgin birth of Jesus. Joseph knew her not until she had born a son, and she called his name Jesus. Matthew 1, 25. Some scholars argue that this verse implies that Mary conceived Jesus miraculously and later lost her virginity as she and Joseph assumed a conventional sexual relationship. For skeptics, the question remains, if Mary was not a virgin, and God was not the father of Jesus, who was? The most likely candidate, predictably, is Joseph. But in the first century, a rumor surfaced of another possibility. It was chronicled by the Christian theologian Origen, who taught in Egypt in the second century. He wrote of an allegation that Jesus was the offspring of Mary and a Roman soldier. The Jew, speaking of the mother of Jesus, said that she was guilty of adultery, and that she bore a child to a certain soldier named Panthera. It was to be expected, indeed, that those who would not believe the miraculous birth of Jesus would invent some falsehood. Origen, against Celsus, chapter 33. Origen argues that um, they had to create this lie, this lie of Mary and the Roman soldier, because they knew and they unwittingly admitted in their lie that Jesus's birth was not a usual birth. And so if they couldn't accept the miraculous nature of this birth, what else would they do but create such a lie? The accusation that Mary was raped by a Roman soldier and produced the child, therefore, out of wedlock, seems to me to be the obvious rebuttal that I would make if I didn't accept the virginal birth. This is the nasty within the family, and therefore very nasty, name-calling that goes on between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews in the first century, each sort of saying rather nasty things about the other. But could this accusation have any basis in fact? One clue scholars have examined is the name of the Roman soldier mentioned by Origen, Panthera. Lo and behold, it turns out that uh, a tombstone of a certain panther has been found in Germany. 
the tombstone of a Roman soldier whose name was Tiberius Julius Amptus Panther. And it is said that he was a Sidonian archer who was based in Palestine. And so that leads them to the speculation, could it be the case that Mary was actually raped by, seduced by, but at her age, we would call that rape, raped by a Roman soldier. And it is one of the historical possibilities. The tombstone, discovered in 1859 in the city of Bingerbrook, is an intriguing yet inconclusive piece of evidence. Some scholars have argued that Panthera was likely a common name among the ancient Romans. So, finding it etched on an ancient tombstone should not seem surprising. The discovery has become part of a 2,000-year-old theological debate over Jesus' parentage. But the issue was once a private crisis for one humble carpenter. After Joseph learns Mary is pregnant, say the Gospels, he naturally assumes she has betrayed his trust. Under the laws of his time, he could have Mary stoned to death for her perceived infidelity. Instead, he quietly breaks their engagement. God intervenes. He sends an angel to Joseph in a dream who tells him that her child has been miraculously conceived. Joseph accepts the divine explanation. He and Mary resolve to carry out God's miracle. archaeologists make a remarkable discovery three miles from Bethlehem. The pinkish limestone appears utterly ordinary, except it is located precisely in the center of the ruins of a 5th century church. The church, it seems, was built purposefully around it. The diggers believe they have found the fabled Katisma, the Greek word for the seat. According to an apocryphal text, Mary rested on it on her way to give birth to Jesus. Ancient Christians gathered here to commemorate her journey to Bethlehem. The find renews debate over an age-old historical question. Where was Jesus born? I believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as the stories tell us. The reason I believe this is that there were very early traditions in the church of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, these would have surfaced very soon after his death, when people were, were still remembered things, that he was born in Bethlehem. I think it was likely Nazareth. Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And typically, people were known by their birthplace. This is where the family lived. Um, the way in which Matthew and Luke go through some contortions to get the family to Bethlehem in order for Jesus to be born there seems to indicate that there's something that is theologically motivated about this kind of account. Some scholars believe that the gospel authors knew Jesus was born in Nazareth, but altered the truth in the name of faith. Their inspiration, once again, may have been a prophecy from the Old Testament. But as for you, 
Bethlehem, though you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Micah 5.2 From Bethlehem, predicts Micah, will arise a Messiah for God's chosen people. If Luke and Matthew wished to exalt Jesus as the awaited king, no other city would suffice as his birthplace. Whether inspired by facts or faith, Luke's account of the journey to Bethlehem is complex and colorful. His story begins in Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph await the birth of Jesus. But the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus orders a census of his empire. A census involved essentially finding out uh, the numbers of people, the wealth of people, for purposes of taxation. So you had to have figures, you had to have concrete data about what a province could uh, generate in terms of taxes so that when the empire decided what its tribute should be, they would be able to raise uh, those funds. And presumably the reason Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem is because Joseph has property there and for that reason is required to register himself there rather than at Nazareth. Luke does not specify their means of transportation. But since donkeys were commonly used to move both goods and people, the popular image of Mary riding one is entirely plausible. The roads in Palestine, even by ancient standards, were primitive. The food commonly taken on an extended journey was bread and water. Scholars imagine the 90-mile trek that's all we have for this segment. Um, <clears throat> tune into the next segment after these words. Slowed by Mary's condition, they would have traveled perhaps 10 miles a day. The entire journey would have lasted more than a week. The question remains whether Joseph and Mary really endured such a journey. The key to the answer may lie in the census that Luke says motivated it. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke 2, 2. Independent historical sources confirm that a Roman census did occur during the reign of Quirinius. But it occurred in 6 AD long after Jesus was born. It has been suggested that Luke misidentified the governor. He may have meant to specify the similarly named Quintilius. His reign began in 6 BC, around the same time that another Roman census was conducted. Even if this is true, however, paradox persists. Roman records indicate that every census ordered by Caesar Augustus over a 42-year span involved only Roman citizens. Mary and Joseph would not have participated. Also suspect is a census that required registrants to return to the city where they were born. If everyone goes back to their ancestral home to be recorded and then goes back to wherever they live, that's a bureaucratic nightmare. It's not the way the Romans did it. They wanted you recorded where you were working. 
where you are, pay your taxes. So it's a story which Luke creates in order to get Mary and Joseph and Jesus, of course, to be born yet to Bethlehem. But it is not fact. It's fiction. For a long time, we thought that this was just a story and that there, this was just a literary device. Well, we've discovered papyri in Egypt now that put a whole different slant on this. The Romans required peasants who had found themselves unable to both pay their taxes to Caesar and provide for their families to return to their villages precisely in order to be down on the farm where they would raise crops and pay the Roman taxes. Then that puts some great credibility back in this legend uh, that Joseph and Mary journeyed to uh, Bethlehem on the occasion of Caesar having decreed a tax. Whether Luke's story of the census is credible or not, there may be a completely different scenario that compelled Mary and Joseph to journey to Bethlehem. Some scholars suggest it is possible that Mary was aware of the Old Testament prophecy in Micah. They believe she may have purposely delivered her baby in the predicted city to bolster his role as the Messiah. Let's remember Luke's portrayal of Mary as a socially and politically very sophisticated young woman who sees her role as part of the resistance of the Hebrew people to Roman-occupied Palestine. So now we're searching for the magic frequency. Do we start with 100 hertz? Do we look through the microscope to see if anything's happened? We watch for five minutes. Nothing happens. We try hundreds. For this woman to associate the coming of this messianic child with the line of David and to make a move to Bethlehem to emphasize that association would be a politically very savvy on her part. Is it possible? Absolutely, I think it's possible. If Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it is still a mystery as to the precise setting. One passage, however, may hold the answer. And she gave birth to her newborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 2, 7. Luke says to us, there was no room at the inn. Actually, that can be translated, it was not the place for them in the inn. You know, an inn was simply an open field surrounded by a wall where travellers could go to be safe from the animals and robbers. And they, there was a huge fire in the middle where they could do their own cooking. And many travellers would have been staying there. It probably would be the last place in the world you would want to have a baby. Luke's mention of a manger implies Jesus was born in a stable where it would most likely be found. But it is doubtful it would have been a freestanding structure. The more likely setting is a cave, as caves were commonly used to house livestock in the Holy Land. Wherever Jesus was born, Matthew and Luke call attention to the modest nature of the setting. Though they decreed Jesus a king, they make clear that he was not born in a palace. Virtually all of the gospel accounts want to emphasize the humble beginnings of Jesus. 
the poor beginnings of Jesus. Look at the setting for the arrival of God's Messiah. God chose the least. God chose the powerless as the stage upon which salvation shall be worked out. That's a very profound and important point. For Christians, Jesus' birth signifies a new beginning for mankind. Two thousand years later, the centuries themselves are measured from this pivotal moment in history. But when it occurred, still remains a mystery. Every December 25th, millions embrace Christmas with reverence and revelry. But unconsciously, the entire world celebrates it every day. In theory, every minute and second that ticks by is measured from the moment Jesus drew his first breath. The number emblazoned above Times Square declares how many years we believe have passed since Jesus was born. The only problem is that we are almost certainly wrong. The answer was a mystery even in Jesus' own time. For the early Christians, the defining moment of his life was not its beginning, but its end. The question of when Jesus was born was not an issue until the second century. Christians found themselves challenged by a splinter group of believers who claimed Jesus had never been born in the conventional sense. I believe that the birth of Jesus only became important in the second century with Gnosticism. Gnostics were an heretical group within the church who uh, were suggesting that Jesus never had a real body. They essentially did not believe that matter was good. The only thing that was good was spirit. They did not believe uh, in the incarnation. They believed in what we call the docetic Christ. He only appeared to have a body. And I believe that the infancy narratives were written to counteract this heresy. When the early Christians became more curious about the circumstances of Jesus' birth, they began to speculate about the date it occurred. In Egypt, a bishop named Clement determined that Jesus was born on November 18th. Elsewhere in North Africa, an anonymous scholar of the same era declared it to be March 28th. Why they chose these dates is unknown. By the 4th century, Christians were no closer to finding the truth but they decided which day seemed most appropriate, at least symbolically. December 25th had long been celebrated as the pagan holiday honoring the sun god Mithras. It was part of a two-week festival of the winter solstice when the days began to lengthen. 
For the first several centuries of Christianity, the church found itself in fierce competition with popular pagan religions. What better way to challenge them than to usurp their holidays? In the same way that you might take a pagan temple and put a Christian shrine right on top of it. You put a Christian feast, the birth of Jesus, right on top of the winter solstice, right on top of a pagan feast. You sort of obliterate the pagan layer with the Christian layer. Beyond the practical motivation was the symbolic. I suppose we could say that Jesus was the light of the world and this is a wonderful time to have the celebration when there is darkness and then there is light, this light suddenly appearing. In the year 349, Pope Julius formally designated December 25th as Christmas. Believers now had an official date on which to celebrate, but the declaration extinguished whatever curiosity remained to discover the actual date of Jesus' birth. Throughout the centuries, few clues have surfaced to solve the mystery. One is provided by Luke in one of the best-known passages from his gospel. There were shepherds in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks. You were not put on this planet to work for money. Money is meant to work for you. And I'll let by night. Luke 2, 8. In ancient Israel, shepherds guarded their flocks at night only during the season when the ewes gave birth to their lambs. It happened in the spring. In December, sheep were generally kept in corrals, unwatched. Some scholars believe Luke's reference suggests we may be celebrating Christmas eight months too late. Ultimately, determining the month and day Jesus was born may be impossible. But determining the year offers scholars more hope. The effort began some 500 years after his birth. By then, the Christian church had expanded its influence to all dimensions of life. Perhaps the only untouched dimension was the most intangible of them all, time. To that point in history, calendars measured time beginning with the founding of Rome, or the reign of some of its rulers. For Christians, this was no longer acceptable. As Christians were contemplating a calendar, they thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if there would be a calendar that would be geared into Christian values? Wouldn't it be remarkable if there could be a Christian calendar that would begin with Jesus? And then it becomes important to find out, well, when did Jesus begin? The question of the nativity, the date of the birth of Jesus, has puzzled people for 1,500 years. Church fathers decided that rather than count years from the beginning of the reign of a impious, non-Christian Roman emperor, that they should count the years with the birth of Jesus. And so Dionysius Exiguus, a monk living in Rome, was given the project of determining when precisely Jesus was born. For reasons known only to Dionysius, 
he decided to place Jesus' birth in the year 753 of the old Roman calendar. He then invented a new calendar, decreeing that Jesus was born on December 25th in the year 1 BC, with the year 1 AD beginning a week later. Today, many scholars believe Dionysius made a critical error. They say he failed to take into account a key piece of information from the Gospels. One of the details in Matthew and Luke's infancy story is that his birth took place during the reign of Herod. So if we can determine the reign of Herod and the death of Herod, uh, then we can more closely determine the date of Jesus' birth. The, the question of the timing of Herod's death is not in question. We're fairly sure that Herod died in uh, what would be chronologically 4 BCE, and then that provides the, the symbolic, if not the actual point at which Jesus must have been born, just before that happened. 4 BC, perhaps a few years earlier. Until additional evidence is discovered, this range is as close as we can come to the answer. This renowned astronomer believes he may have found the answer. For several years, he has been investigating yet another mystery of the Christmas story. The search for Christmas transcends the bounds of Earth. away might be one of the tale's greatest mysteries, the Star of Bethlehem. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Matthew 2, 2. For centuries, the star has endured as a mesmerizing symbol of Christianity, almost as powerful as the cross. But did it truly exist? Or was it created after the fact to make Jesus' birth seem more miraculous? Generally, uh, after people died, it was often said that a star had proclaimed their birth. This was said for Alexander the Great. It was said for the Emperor Augustus himself that uh, a star appeared at his birth. In fact, Shakespeare tells us the heavens themselves tell forth the birth of princes. I don't believe there was a star. I don't believe that there were magi uh, who came from the east. I don't know what that star of Bethlehem was. But I do think that it's highly likely that there was an astrological event that occurred in that region that was brought into the legend, brought into the story, brought into the tradition of the birth of Jesus. For centuries, astronomers have tried to determine if the Christmas star was more than a myth and what celestial phenomenon could have accounted for it. The first astronomer to speculate on what the star of Bethlehem might have been was the great Johannes Kepler 400 years ago. The man who worked out why it is that the planets move the way they do. And when Johannes Kepler saw an exploding star in 1604, he thought, aha, that might have been what the Magi saw. What could be more glorious? And we can look at the old Chinese records and they recorded all stars that exploded that they saw. 
but none appeared at the time of the birth of Jesus. So despite the charm of the idea, and despite Kepler's enthusiasm for it, apparently it was not an exploding star. Some astronomers have proposed comets, or in particular Halley's Comet, which is probably the most famous comet of all. And it appeared in around the time that we believe Jesus was born. However, if you look at the ancient texts and try to understand what the people of ancient times believed in, they feared comets. Comets didn't indicate the birth of a king. It really meant usually the death of a king or the start of a war. So I, we really cannot propose that a comet, or in particular Halley's Comet, was uh, the star of Bethlehem. For some modern astronomers, the key to unraveling the truth lies in understanding the point of view of the Magi. The term Magi is the root from which we derive the word magic. They were a respected class of advisors in the ancient Near East who used astrology to predict the future. Magi thought the planets moved because the gods were causing them to move. The gods were making them go this way and that way, and when one planet happened to line up with another planet, that, that was because the gods had something in mind for us, and there was some correspondence between what happened in the sky and what happened down below. They believed in magic, and they believed in the magic of the sky. In the ancient Near East, belief in astrology began several centuries before the birth of Christ. It was almost universally accepted throughout the region. The only place where it had little influence was the nation in which Jesus was destined to be born. We find that tiny Judea is sort of an island in a sea of astrology believers. That is, all of the countries, the cultures in and around Judea, they believe that astrology did predict the future, that it was a science, and that it really helped them to understand their own lives. But only when we go to Judea, we find that it is not practiced or believed in. Judea's lack of astrological insight is evident in a key passage from Matthew that may help explain what the star of Bethlehem was. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Matthew 2, 7. An important clue in Matthew is that only the Magi saw this star, whatever it was. Herod and his advisors didn't know about it. They had to inquire diligently of the Magi what they'd seen. So that tells us it wasn't something spectacular in the sky like a bright comet that everyone could have seen. Some astronomers believe that what the Magi saw, and the Hebrews did not, was a visually subtle conjunction of planets. It happens when one heavenly body appears to cross the path of another. It is a common occurrence. But many scholars believe that 2,000 years ago, a specific conjunction may have been viewed as a sign that the Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled, that the Messiah had finally been born. John Mosley of the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles has had an avid interest in the Star of Bethlehem for 20 years. He believes he has discovered the celestial phenomena that attracted the Magi. I think that what the Magi saw was a series of conjunctions. There were three conjunctions of the planet Jupiter and the star Regulus, and two very close conjunctions of Jupiter and Venus over a 10-month period of time during the years 3 and 2 BC.
And the final of these conjunctions was really spectacular. It's the sort of thing that I would love to see. Jupiter and Venus were so close, they almost touched. So if you were looking for something of great astrological interest, and after all, the Magi were astrologers, then I think you could do nothing better than to, to look at these conjunctions, this series of events, as the sort of thing that would have made the Magi think, aha, this is important, the prophecies were fulfilled. Michael Molnar, an astronomer formerly of Rutgers University, has a different theory. His interest in the Star of Bethlehem began when he discovered a clue on an ancient coin at a New York collector's show. It was minted in Syria in 13 AD. His findings represent perhaps the most significant recent insight into the Christmas story. What side had the god Zeus on it, or our Jupiter? All right. I've seen lots of coins with that god on them. But I flipped it over, and the other side was a beautiful picture of Aries the ram, a sign of the zodiac. There was the ram leaping across the sky, looking backwards at an overhead star. Aries the ram is key to the whole puzzle. We astronomers were looking in the wrong part of the sky for the star of Bethlehem. The star had appeared in Aries the ram. Molnar's research into ancient astrological texts reveals that each sign of the zodiac represented a particular kingdom. Aries represented Judea. Molnar discovered that a specific set of conditions occurring in Aries would have convinced the Magi that a person of cosmic importance was to be born there. The most important star that would confer kingships, uh, make a, a, a young boy a, a king, was uh, the star of Zeus, which we call the planet Jupiter today. So I knew that the, the star was most likely the planet Jupiter. I found that the moon played a very important role and that the closer the moon was to Jupiter, uh, the better or were the conditions to have the birth of a young king. But most important was that Jupiter had to be in the east. Well, in the east means, according to the beliefs and practices of stargazers of 2000 years ago, that it was about to emerge as a morning star. That is an eastern morning sky. Molnar's challenge was to find the precise moment when this particular set of conditions occurred in the constellation of Aries. Well, to make a long story short, I ran my computer program for a huge swath in time that biblical scholars believe Jesus was born. And we find that in 6 BC, on April 17th to be exact, this these events happened. Jupiter was in the east, in Aries the ram, and at the same time, the moon came extremely close to Jupiter. The moon came so close, in fact, that it eclipsed Jupiter. And these celestial objects in Aries the ram indicated, according to the astrologers, that there was the birth of a great king. Molnar's findings are perhaps the most compelling evidence that the star of Bethlehem was a genuine phenomenon. His theory is all the more intriguing in that it places the star's appearance in the very year that many scholars believe Jesus was born. The Magi, whose belief in astrology compelled them to follow the star, are as much of a mystery as the star itself. 
Tradition holds that there were three wise men, but Matthew never specifies how many there were. Matthew also never tells from what nation they came, but many scholars think they were from Babylonia, the site of modern-day Iraq. Outside of Israel, no other country was as aware of the tale of a coming Jewish Messiah. Five hundred years before Jesus' birth, the Babylonians conquered the Hebrews and exiled tens of thousands of Jews back to their kingdom. Scholars believe that it was therefore inevitable that the ancient prophecy became common knowledge among the Babylonians. Ironically, their astrological interpretation of the star would compel them to believe that their true king had emerged from a nation they had vanquished. The Babylonians were one of the most brutal ancient regimes to have ever conquered the Hebrew people. And here come the Babylonian descendants subservient to the birth of a Hebrew Messiah, so deeply impressed with the significance of this birth that they come on bended knee to this child. There is a wonderful irony in this story, almost as if the gospel writers are saying to us, remember the people who thought that they were so powerful and who conquered us so many centuries ago? Even they now are on their knees before the birth of our humble Messiah. <laughs> According to Matthew, the Magi present the infant Jesus gifts of gold and two aromatic resins, frankincense and myrrh. The gifts held deep symbolic significance for the readers of Matthew's day. Some believed that the Messiah, when he came, would be a king some believed that he would be a great prophet. Some believed that he would be a priest. Gold is for a king, uh, frankincense for a priest, myrrh would signify a prophet. So what Matthew is doing in this little story is simply telling his audience, whatever you were expecting in the way of a Messiah has been born. Although every nativity scene depicts the Magi honoring a newborn, many scholars believe they arrived when Jesus was as old as two. The Greek word Matthew uses to describe Jesus is one the Greeks attached not to a baby, but a toddler. For 2,000 years, the comforting images of the Christmas story have warmed the hearts of millions. The search for the tale's historical roots leads to one of the most horrifying incidents described in the Bible. All right, we are on part three of Evidence of Jesus' Birth Revealed. Check it out on the brain pages. Descendants subservient to the birth of the human Messiah, so deeply impressed with the significance of this birth that they come on bended knee to this child. There is a wonderful irony in this story. Almost as if the gospel writers are saying to us, remember the people who thought that they were so powerful and who conquered us so many centuries ago? Even they now are on their knees before.
before the birth of our humble Messiah. According to Matthew, the Magi present the infant Jesus gifts of gold and two aromatic resins, frankincense and myrrh. The gifts held deep symbolic significance for the readers of Matthew's day. Some believed that the Messiah, when he came, would be a king. Some believed that he would be a great prophet. Some believed that he would be a priest. Gold is for a king. Uh, frankincense for a priest, myrrh would signify a prophet. So what Matthew is doing in this little story is simply telling his audience, whatever you were expecting in the way of a Messiah has been born. Although every nativity scene depicts the Magi honoring a newborn, many scholars believe they arrived when Jesus was as old as two. The Greek word Matthew uses to describe Jesus is one the Greeks attached not to a baby, but a toddler. For 2,000 years, the comforting images of the Christmas story have warmed the hearts of millions. But the search for the tale's historical roots leads to one of the most horrifying incidents described in the Bible. of Jesus triggers an event that bathes the streets of Bethlehem in blood. It begins when the Magi, led by the star, pause in Jerusalem. They seek an audience with King Herod the Great. For more than 30 years, Herod has ruled despotically over Judea as a loyal ally to the Roman Empire. His power is matched only by his unpopularity. The Magi hope that Herod can help them find the infant destined to be king, but their questions inadvertently imperil Jesus's life. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. Matthew 2, one. According to Matthew, Herod regards Jesus as a dangerous political rival. Fate has pitted an innocent child against one of history's most ruthless and vengeful leaders. This fellow was the very epitome of, of a tyrant. He had uh, secret police. He had informers uh, sort of spying on the, uh, the, the people, especially in Jerusalem. Uh, the minute he would hear of any resistance, he'd send out the troops first and ask questions later. He was suspicious of his own sons, and he killed his own sons. He put to death his own sons that would have been his heirs. He murdered so many of his own family, including his mother, his favorite wife, Mariana. He was unscrupulous and extraordinarily cruel. Herod's paranoia is ignited by the Magi's news of the Messiah's birth. His thoughts turn instantly to murder. But he keeps his intentions secret from the Magi hoping that they will lead him to his target. And he sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, 
go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me. But I too may come and worship him. Matthew 2, 8. After the Magi honored Jesus, writes Matthew, an angel informs them of Herod's scheme. They defy his order to return to his palace and hastily leave Judea. By taking a different route than the one they used to arrive, they avoid capture by Herod's soldiers and interrogation as to Jesus' whereabouts. Enraged, Herod hatches an alternate plan. Estimating Jesus' age from the time the Magi first saw the star, he orders that all boys in Bethlehem aged two and under be killed. From Jerusalem, the Christian era's first death squad approaches. At this moment, according to Matthew, the unsuspecting Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are asleep. But God sends an angel to alert them to the danger. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Matthew 2, 13. As the family escapes, Herod's soldiers sweep into Bethlehem. The king's cold-blooded order is carried out. as Matthew described it, it seems that it would appear in Luke's gospel. Um, it seems that it would have appeared in the writings of one such as Josephus, a significant Jewish historian um, of the first century. I think that those things indicate to us, especially the absence in Josephus, um, indicate to us that Matthew may have been up to something else. Some scholars say the lack of corroboration is not by itself proof that the slaughter is simply Matthew's invention. They point out that the population of Bethlehem was then perhaps 1,000, and that there could have been as few as 20 infants under two. The limited scope of the slaughter may have kept it from entering the history books. It would certainly have been awful, but it would probably not have been a huge number. Yes, of course it could easily have escaped Josephus. So I couldn't argue that it didn't happen because Josephus does not mention it. It's quite possible he wouldn't have heard of it, or he could have heard of it and not thought it was important. Could the slaughter of the innocents have happened? Was Herod the kind of ruler capable of this kind of brutality? The answer to that question is absolutely yes, he was capable of that kind of brutality. We have account after account of ancient rulers terrified of the idea amongst their captive population that a 
ruler was going to come, that a deliverer was going to come, and their attempts to try to deal with it. This is not at all an unbelievable element of the story. Whether fact or fiction, the slaughter of the innocents is reminiscent of another horrific episode from the book of Exodus. It describes how the Egyptian pharaoh tries to murder another messenger of God, the infant Moses, by ordering. So now we're searching for the magic frequency. And we start with 100 hertz, and we look through the microscope to see if anything's happening. We watch for five minutes. Nothing happens. We try hundreds and hundreds of frequencies, if not thousands, until we find the magic combination. Because we believed there just had to be a better way. There had to be a better way. And we think we may have found it. This controversial $49 sleep mask is now available in the US. It uses some of the most advanced sound healing technology in the world. This technology allows you to listen to sounds at a frequency that creates healing vibrations around the body in a meditative state. These healing sounds eliminate inflammation, reduces stress, promotes calm focus, and speeds up the metabolism. What's interesting about this sleep mask is that, until a few weeks ago, it was unavailable to the public because only one company had the patent for the technology. They were only selling it to millionaires, who could afford their expensive price of $500 per sleep mask. But on March 5, 2022, a Berkeley professor rediscovered the patent. So we search the U.S. patent database, and we find this invention by a physician, Dr. James Bear of Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's called a resonant frequency therapy device, and its purpose is to induce a resonant vibration in a living organism or cell. Professor John Patterson, a renowned Berkeley physicist, entered the marketplace and quietly started manufacturing these super powerful sleep masks and he's producing them at a price that's actually affordable for everyday Americans. He called it the Shore Sleep. So now we're searching for the magic frequency. And we start with 100 hertz, and we look through the microscope to see if anything's happening. We watch for five minutes. Nothing happens. So we try 101 hertz. We look through the scope for five minutes, and nothing happens. So we try 102, 103, and so on. Over the course of 15 months, we try hundreds and hundreds of frequencies, if not thousands, until we find the magic combination. The answer is you have to have two input frequencies, one low, one high, and the higher frequency must be 11 times the lower. It's what we musicians would call the 11th harmonic. When we add the 11th harmonic, we begin to shatter microorganisms like a crystal glass. These are the first videos taken. We showed these videos to our friends in the biology department. They said they hadn't seen anything quite like it. It seems to be a new phenomenon. Professor Patterson rigorously engineered the Shaw sleep mask to operate on the 11th harmonic, emitting sounds at a special frequency shown to dissolve stress and inflammation. We've gotten tons of messages from people who use it to listen to the mysterious healing sounds of Nikola Tesla's universal harmonic. 
Tom from Michigan used the mask to listen to the sounds of Tesla's code on the 11th harmonic, and he had epic dreams. The best part about the whole experience was that he could control his dreams. He felt like he was releasing tension and inflammation from every cell in his body, clearing away the negative energy in his heart and his mind. This was especially amazing when he woke up, and for the first time in years, felt his mind crystal clear and his chest light and free of worry. Whether you're excited about the mysteries of deep sound healing, or you want to embark on the epic journey of lucid dreaming, the possibilities with the sure sleep mask are endless. Professor Patterson is not looking to make any profit, because he wants as many people as possible to benefit from this new technology. So he's asking for only $49 to cover the cost. Last time he checked, they only have 147 masks left, and they're going fast. And when they sell out, they won't be available until November 2022. So, if you want to get this powerful sleep mask for a tiny fraction of the real price, click the button below right now and secure your own sure sleep mask today. God bless. Charge your phone 40% faster with this new four-port charging device. This $37 phone charger is taking the world by storm in the U.S. New groundbreaking technology can charge your phone's battery from zero to 100% in record time and restore your phone's speed, performance, and battery life like it was when you bought it. But smartphone companies are trying their hardest to ban this device in the U.S. You might not know this, but smartphone manufacturers are deliberately downgrading your phone. It's called planned obsolescence, and it's a common trick used in the tech industry to make people buy a new phone faster to drive sales. And there's a 90% chance your phone is also infected with this. If you've noticed your phone becoming slower or acting up after a software update, it's not your imagination. Planned obsolescence is pre-built into software updates that make your phone's performance and battery life worse. They're essentially making your phone useless in hopes of you buying a new model. But rather than spending hundreds or even thousands of dollars on a brand new smartphone every few years, this $37 device is the best and most cost-effective way to turn your old, slow phone into a brand new lightning-fast smartphone. It was invented by a mobile engineer who found out about this planned obsolescence scandal and developed a brilliant device that bypasses the downgrades. It's called X-Charge Pro, a $37 charging device that can completely remove planned obsolescence from any smartphone using something called Smart Defrag Technology, making any slow loading times completely disappear from your phone and unlocking the true potential of the battery. The charger is equipped with revolutionary QC3 fast charge technology, which is up to 40% faster than normal chargers. It can even charge four devices simultaneously, charging a depleted battery from zero to 100% in record time. X-Charge Pro distributes power-hungry apps like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. to a more energy-efficient flow, tripling your device's performance and speed. All you need to do is plug in X-Charge Pro, connect it to your smartphone, and let it do all the work. The company behind X-Charge Pro has already sold over 3 million units worldwide and is generating an incredible number of positive reviews. They really want the planned obsolescence scandal to suffer. That's why they are offering 50% off the remaining units in their warehouse. But you have to act fast. Smartphone companies are fighting back by trying to get X-Charge Pro off the market. And if X-Charge Pro doesn't charge your phone's battery to 100% in record time as promised, then the company will refund every single dollar back to you. 
Are you ready to try XCharge Pro? Click here to get XCharge Pro with a 50% discount today. During the execution of all Israelite boys. Some scholars believe Matthew's account is an invention based on the older story and an effort to reinforce Jesus's role as the deliverer of his people. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the new Moses. So the same way that Pharaoh tried to kill all the children and almost killed Moses, but Moses escaped by divine power, bad Pharaoh becomes bad Herod. This is Matthew working the parallelism between Jesus the new Moses in his life. So Jesus must be born, as it were, and almost killed like the old Moses was. In Egypt, writes Matthew, the young Jesus finds safety from Herod's wrath. But Matthew provides no details about how Mary and Joseph endure the 250-mile trek to bring him here. Some scholars speculate that they financed the journey by selling the gold, frankincense, and myrrh given to them by the Magi. But other scholars doubt they ever venture here. No historical evidence has been found to support Matthew's account. And Luke's gospel contradicts it, describing how Mary and Joseph travel uneventfully with the newborn Jesus back to Nazareth. Where the Holy Family lived and how long they stayed in Egypt, Matthew does not say. But a number of legends have survived. In Cairo, the Church of St. Sergius is built upon the site where it is believed that they stayed for three months. Outside Cairo, Christians since the 5th century have gathered at this ancient sycamore. They call it the Tree of Mary. For here they believe she sought shade beneath its branches. I have visited the sites in Cairo and they are fun to go to. And if they help people's piety, that's fine. But I don't think they have any. One reason that scholars believe Jesus never visited Egypt is that his teachings many years later bear no sign of Egyptian influence. I don't find anything that Jesus would have learned in Egypt, even if I take literally the idea that he went there as a young child and lived there for a length of time. I do not find anything in teachings of Jesus or the life of Jesus that does not come from me straight out of the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish tradition. Despite the lack of any Egyptian nuance to Jesus's ministry, some scholars believe he may have indeed spent time in Egypt. Jesus would have been a member of a minority in Egyptian culture. It could very well be that the Egyptian influence on Jesus was exactly the opposite of what some people speculate. In other words, it may have solidified his Hebrew identity and not so much made him open to Egyptian influence. After all, we know that living in exile, living in diaspora, 
sometimes makes people intensely more interested in their cultural tradition and so less interested in the influences of the majority culture around them. After an unspecified time in Egypt, writes Matthew, Mary and Joseph receive a message from God that it is safe to return. When Herod was dead, an angel appeared, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Matthew 2, 19. Joseph escorts his family back to Judea, to the city of Nazareth. There, some 30 years later, Jesus will begin his earth-shaking ministry. Reconstructing the history of Jesus' birth begins by examining the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. There is another version of the first Christmas unknown to millions of believers. The infancy gospel of James. It was purportedly written soon after Herod the Great died, which scholars believe happened in 4 BC. The author claims to be James, one of the brothers of Jesus alluded to several times in the New Testament. James is identified as Jesus' brother in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Galatians. And Josephus, the first century historian, corroborates James's identity when he writes of James's death at the hand of a treacherous high priest. So he assembled a council of judges and brought it before James, the brother of Jesus, known as Christ, and several others, on the charge of breaking the law and handed them over to be stoned. Josephus, the Jewish Antiquities. Although the infancy gospel of James was accepted by early Christians, the church never authorized it as scripture. As such, it has been relegated to the biblical literature known as the Apocrypha. It presents many of the same elements as the traditional story. There is the census, the trek to Bethlehem, the Magi, and the star. But there the similarities end. James writes that Mary goes into labor not in Bethlehem, but before they are ever able to reach the city. When they came to the middle of their journey, Mary said to him, Joseph, take me off the donkey. The child is pushing from within me to let him come out. So he took her off the donkey and said to her, Where will I take you and shelter you? This area is a desert. And he found a cave and led her there, while he went to find a Hebrew midwife in the land of Bethlehem. The Infancy Gospel of James, 17.10 In contrast to Matthew and Luke, James specifies that Jesus is born in a cave, which coincides with what many scholars believe to be the true setting. While Joseph is away searching for a midwife, Mary begins to deliver the baby Jesus. At the same moment, a bizarre phenomenon occurs. Joseph is stunned. 
as time literally stands still. With utter astonishment, I saw the birds in the sky were not moving. And I looked at workers picking food up, but they were not picking it up. And I saw sheep be driven, but the sheep were standing still. The Infancy Gospel of James, 18.4. He is suddenly... Would you be interested in collecting five-figure paychecks for a few hours of work, helping me in your spare time from home? I'm on a mission to recover $10 million within the next 12 months to American patriots that have unrightly been robbed of these funds and are not aware the funds still belong to them. $14 million are being swiped every day, and there's just too much for me to do alone, and that's where you come in. I'll show you how to recover these funds for them. You'll get paid handsomely for your help. Each one of these takes only a few hours and is producing five-figure checks. Really struck by everything in nature. Uh, the heavens, the stars, the birds, the workers, the animals, all around them stopping right in their tracks. And then suddenly everything returns to the way it was, and life goes on as it had formerly. And presumably in the context of that story, the moment of the suspension of time, Jesus himself is being born. Joseph returns to the cave with two midwives, but Mary has already given birth. One of the midwives believes Mary's claim that she is a virgin, <clears throat> but the other, named Salome, is skeptical. The midwife said, Mary, position yourself, for not a small test concerning you is about to take place. When Mary heard these things, she positioned herself, and Salome inserted her finger into her body. Salome cried out and said, Woe for my lawlessness and the unbelief that made me test the living God. Look, my hand is falling away from me and being consumed by fire. The Infancy Gospel of James, 20. Salome begs forgiveness for her lack of faith. God hears her prayer and sends an angel to heal her. James's account reaches its dramatic peak with a version of the slaughter of the innocents that differs slightly from Matthew's. You do have the murder of the infants with Herod attacking the babies. Mary, who had given birth to Jesus in a cave, now hide Jesus by placing him in the manger. So the familiar manger uh, from Luke uh, is now used in a different way in the infancy gospel of James. Is it possible this intricate tale is the most accurate version of the Christmas story? Although James's infancy gospel was supposedly written just after the death of Herod in 4 BC, scholars believe it was produced as much as 150 years later after the books of Matthew and Luke. They note that it is written in a literary style not invented until the second century. The style is known as an encomium, which follows strict rules of composition to praise virtuous persons. In this case, the Virgin Mary. And James, they argue, could not possibly have been the author. The historian Josephus records that he died in 62 AD a hundred years before the document was apparently written.
one of the reasons why the infancy gospel of James uh, seems to have less credibility perhaps than the stories contained in Matthew and Luke is it doesn't seem to be quite as familiar with local color in Palestine. Uh, the thought being that maybe the whoever put this together uh, didn't, had, didn't really have much direct knowledge of Palestine. It was also probably not someone who was Jewish uh, because there are errors in the understanding of Jewish customs and traditions. Many scholars believe that the only knowledge the author had of Jesus' birth was what had been recorded several decades earlier in the Gospels now familiar to millions. The major source that the author of the infancy Gospel of James has is Matthew and Luke. There is not any clear evidence that he has any other real information. It does not seem that he has any sort of raw unfiltered traditions that, that Matthew and Luke didn't know about, but that somehow this author has found out about. It's, it's possible, of course, but that doesn't seem to be what, he, what the author has. What the author has simply is two sources and a very, very good imagination. Although its value as an historical source is questionable, the Gospel of James still provides valuable insight many scholars believe it represents the earliest effort to idealize Mary, an effort that centuries later would culminate in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. It really embodies that hope in a profound sense. Uh, not only was he uh, understood as the Savior in Christ uh, by the new religion, Christianity, that developed, but Jesus was the one who really defined and articulated uh, the agenda for ordinary people who were struggling for independence uh, from domination by foreign powers and uh, their own unjust rulers, and laid out uh, an idea of what a life of justice and uh, mutual caring could be. Jesus' revolutionary ministry is but a continuation of the Christmas story as the Son of God carries out his plan to save mankind from sin and death. It continues further with his arrest, trial, and execution. The significance of his birth in the manger can be understood only by recognizing his sacrifice on the cross. Still, it is Jesus' resurrection that marks the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. 30 years after a miracle brings Jesus into the world, another enables him to rejoin his heavenly father. From the empty tomb emerges the faith destined to transform the world. There are those who would argue that it's based on a lie, that it's based on false rumors of uh, disciples who stole the body of Jesus to make a good story. And yet somehow this story has made its way through history and time in a way unequaled. Beginning as a fringe faith, Christianity receives widespread acceptance after the Roman Emperor Constantine accepts Jesus as his God and Savior. 300 years after Jesus' birth, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
As the centuries pass, its influence becomes immeasurable. Art and science, politics and economics, self and society, all are transformed by Christianity. But Christianity's impact on history is not always positive. During the Crusades, medieval Christians tried to recapture the Holy Land from the Muslims. In the name of Jesus, they killed thousands of innocent men, women, and children. During the Inquisition, the church supports torture as a means of coercing confessions from those considered heretics. By the 16th century, the church grows so powerful, it becomes corrupted by its own success. One measure of its decline is that salvation, once only earned by the faithful, can now be purchased by the rich. A German monk, Martin Luther, declares his outrage. Inspired by Jesus, who cast the money changers from the temple, he fights for reform. The Reformation splits its believers into Catholics and Protestants. Today, millions of Christians still struggle to live up to the high standards of their own faith. We have had a very checkered history as Christians of trying to embody the teachings of a peaceful Messiah who calls on us to care for each other rather than dominate each other, to share with each other rather than to hoard from each other. And it's unfortunate that the first 2,000 years of our attempt as humans to embody the teachings and example of Jesus have not been terribly successful. Gandhi once said about Christianity, it is so magnificent, what a pity it's never been tried. I do believe it has been tried. There are just hundreds and hundreds of uh, wonderful people in the pages of the history of Christianity that show that it has been tried and has made a difference. Christianity has done many things in the name of Jesus, for which I, as a Christian, am ashamed. It has also done many good things in the name of Jesus, for which I am very glad as a Christian, and which makes me very glad to be a Christian. Thousand years after Jesus was born, a third of the world's population professes to be followers of the faith he inaugurated in a manger. For Christians, Christmas celebrates how God gave the world a gift it never deserved, but needed more than anything. To accept the gift is to acknowledge the responsibility of giving something back. Christmas story is intended to question us on the deepest levels of being a human being. Here was the coming of a new way of living. Here was the coming of a new hope. Here was a profound challenge to how we as humans think that the world has to run. As opposed to our belief that the only way that we can live together is to be armed to the teeth and to be ready to fight. Here was one who brought a message, no, that's not the way. We can 
care for each other. We can take care of each other. We can live justly. We can live at peace. If we miss that profound challenge, then we miss the significance of the Christmas story. For me, the Christmas story is an account of the recollections of people like you and I who had an experience of God's presence that was so powerful that they couldn't hold it in. It's a story of mystery and a story of hope replete with the possibilities of peace and goodwill in a world where both are in short supply. For generations to come, the search for the historical truth of the day it all began, the search for Christmas, will continue. No matter what is discovered along the way, millions will always find comfort in the story. They will find fulfillment in the images of an infant's gentle smile and a virgin Radio Hollywood. Uh, I'm trying to get a segment, but I can't find one. Dang it. That sucks. Alright, let's try this. Boom. Go down here real quick. Dang, dang, dang. Dang, 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 dang. Dang, 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 dang. Boom. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We got something. Oh, dang. We got it. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Thank <laughs> you. 
Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. 
A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
plan barbecues and weddings you can plan to protect yourself from a natural disaster sign up for local alerts prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan get started at ready.gov plan brought to you by fema and the ad council lithium powered shower of blazing sparks and retina of slight degree and free vision to the occasional slide to its defeat repeat fractions that have cost you molested derelict gumshoe dumbwaiter pre-season gunshot masturbator mercury glides through the fusion of planetary wheezings and it's a mindfuck affair Check the pulse pulsating regiments below the thick sun glare. Loose case corpse of rich rot gut. Well, I was hot to trot and ready for action. Any action. A distraction from the usual fare, but my flair never faltered. And let me assure you in half awareness that I was a brother of low degree. On my knees in semi-darkness of nightshade and justice. Penetration forms the basis of unnatural reproduction. Introduction to the underworld, underbelly, topsy-turvy skeletal regime. In the season of blindness, I researched the fields of braille laid out before me. Bumps on skin forming masses, passes as in human form. Scorned heat garbage runner, ringworm slant farmer, the father of all disease. Atmospheric dance with darkness, illuminated pulse of a star across a solar plane. And phosphorescent love take the space shove and wind up lost in the Milky Way of suppressed sex and perversion. 
Worm runners shimmy through the aftermath of destitutional insanity. All the goats scape and the virgins are burned Joan of Arc style, flames shooting high through the air and martyrdom intact. But I do not intend to discourage you with these words of dime store wisdom. But if the shoe fits, wear it. And by the looks of you, you're about a size 13. Which, if the myths are to be believed, is a telltale sign of further endowments. If you get my drip lock word ramblings. Hateful thoughts burrow deep beneath hot flash, withered flesh-eating maggot lust. Furlow to indifference and intolerant behavior. But darling, don't get me wrong, you are my savior. Further research may not be necessary. Awaiting instruction in this black and death march game. Teetering on the brink and drink hastily from the boiling cup of disillusionment. Repent. Relentlessly searching for a cure to this vile addiction. Sickened by the sight of lost children, I myself included. Roaming aimlessly through piles of rubbish, hashish induced comatose, drug state elation. Roadmap to anywhere, somewhere, nowhere. Lines crumble and blessed with the attentiveness of a doting mother, fucking pig spine, horror show, slow boat Billy. And those were the days. Somewhere over the rainbow. Colored sleight of hand and crippled finger. Ring her neck and wretched body ground to pulp. And I am neither here nor there. An unaware observer of life's scrumptious plate of manure. Matured and often squandered. Burning image of infectious wild dog rampage. Unlocked cages wither with desire. A surefire plot to override the connection. Spent mind in crawling bad luck, dumb fuck, pretension. An added dimension of hawkers, smooth gin. Where to begin with an ending so close and nothing but cheap ramblings of pharmaceutical ignorance being regurgitated from my gaping orifice. Like the orange sunset of yesteryear. Chalk face dribble running down my chin. In forbidden corners of childhood horror, hide and go. Life becomes perhaps worth living. And those were the days. Allow me this much leverage. A bitter, sweet twisting of the truth. And those were the days. Those were the days. sparks and retina of slight degree and free vision mark on downgrade slow fade heartbeat let me assure you I was a brother of low degree and those were the days those were the days
So <laughs> on the brain bitches.
Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. <laughs>